Our scripture reading this evening comes from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. The passage can be found on page 11 of the bulletin or behind me on the screen. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Meryl. All right, kids, here are the, the three things to listen for. Uh, you've got a spot on your children's bulletin where you can jot these three things down. One is a sunset. Secondly, salted caramel, or caramel if you prefer. I prefer caramel. Uh, and then thirdly, chipotle. So sunset, salted caramel, and chipotle. So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us as we come to these verses together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray that, Lord, you would draw near to us now by your spirit and that your spirit would work with your word to accomplish what you desire uh, in us individually, that you would accomplish what you desire in us as your church. We pray above all that we would come to behold the beauty and the glory of our Savior, for we pray it all in his name, amen. I had a pastor friend in Indiana, and um, he, was, uh, he was a pastor friend, but he was also the, uh, the father of one of my students that were involved with RUF, the ministry that I was leading at that point. Um, and another connection that we had was that he had been on staff with a ministry at TCU back in the early 80s. And as you can imagine, uh, there are not a lot of TCU connections in central Indiana. So this was a big deal uh, when, we, when we found this out, for him to know the campus and know Fort Worth. And so when we first made this connection, he told me this story of a summer evening when he was living here. And he said he, he was driving down university and he saw what was one of the most beautiful sunsets that he had ever seen. And so he starts describing all of the colors that were part of it. As you know, if you've been around here for any amount of time, the beautiful sunsets that we have. And he said, it was like stop you in your tracks, beautiful. And he went on to say, that's actually exactly what happened. He said there were cars that were pulling over on the side of the road in order to stop and look at this sunset. It was that beautiful. And so one of the, the best parts about this story, though, is that he probably told me this story five or six times. Uh, and the reason for that is because he, every single time, forgot that I went to TCU. And so, uh, so he would start in on the story like, you know, I remember a summer evening and then I would kind of try, at first try to stop him. And then it was sort of a Groundhog Day situation where you just kind of let him keep going, just tell the whole story. Uh, but, but here's what was interesting about this. While he, every single time, forgot the TCU connection, he never forgot this sunset. This sunset and the beauty of it was locked in his memory forever. And I mentioned that because what we've seen in Paul's letter to the Colossians over the, the past nine weeks is a picture of the beauty and the loveliness of Jesus. What Paul has wanted us to see is the glory, the grace, the majesty, the, the fullness, the supremacy, the love, the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. 
And the reason he wants that is because when you see him for who he really is, you're going to be drawn to him. And part of the reason he wants that for the Colossians is that as they are drawn to Jesus, they're going to be drawn away from these other things that could detract or distract from him. And so uh, Rowan Williams describes the way St. Augustine understood this beauty of Jesus in this way. This is a quote in your bulletin if you want to look there. He says this, It is the vision of an indescribable loveliness that calls our hearts out of darkness, breaking down the barriers of false love, rightly ordering those desires and impulses by which we live. And so in this final section of Paul's letter here, he he turns the focus now to those who are not yet a part of the church, to those who are outside the church, and he wants to tell us how those folks would come to see the beauty of Jesus. And so what he calls the Colossians to do is to put on display the indescribable loveliness of Christ. And the reason for that is because he knows that is what is most compelling to our non-Christian friends and neighbors. We want to show Jesus to be beautiful and believable. So if you're here this afternoon and, and maybe you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, that is really what we hope you'd see, is the beauty and the believability of Jesus. So the question then is, how do we do that? So uh, three ways from this passage. Here's the first. We show Jesus to be beautiful and believable first, he says, by praying steadfastly. This is exactly what he says in verse two. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. And so at this point, this is a general call to prayer. So it's something that's similar to his words in 1 Thessalonians 5, where, where Paul says to pray without ceasing. And so he probably has in mind prayers of petition, or requests that we'd make of the Lord. But he says, devote yourselves to this. Make this a regular pattern of your life. And he says, in the midst of that pattern, be watchful in it with thanksgiving. So here's what's interesting about that. That same language is used by Jesus when he's talking with his disciples when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he's crucified. He calls them to watch and pray. Here's the other place this language is used, though, in the Bible. It's used to to call people to be alert and watchful for Jesus' return and for for the coming fullness of the kingdom. So here's the question then. Why is that important? Why would Paul call us to that right here? Well, because from the start, what Paul is doing is he's calling us to, to pray regularly and consistently for the coming of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, to make that a regular, consistent part of our pleas with him. So quick note here, Paul is not prescribing prayer because that's just something that, that like religious people do. He's calling us to prayer because he knows that God hears our prayers. He hears us when we pray and our prayers have a real impact in the world. And this is actually where he goes in verses three and four. Look at verse three. He says, at the same time, pray also for us, that's Paul and Timothy, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So he asks them to pray for for a, a couple of specific things about his ministry. The first he says is that God would open a door for this message of the mystery of Christ, which is just as we've seen in this letter, a way to describe the gospel message, what Jesus has come to do for his people. And so that, that, that's part of uh, what, what he asked them for. But then the other thing that he asked them to pray for is that, uh, that the Lord would help him to proclaim the message clearly. 
which is not a bad prayer to pray for your preacher, right? (laughs) Proclaim it clearly. Here's what's interesting, though. Paul recognizes that he can't do this ministry on his own. Now, why not? Well, one, he's in prison, right? Uh, But a lot of commentators point out that what he doesn't pray for here is for his prison door to be opened. What he prays for is for this gospel message to go out. But it's also uh, that that, that he recognizes that God is the one who's going to have to open the door for this message in the hearts of his hearers. Paul knows he can't do that on his own. That God must be the one who's going to open doors for the gospel. Here's what that means for us. It means that one of the main ways that you can help your non-Christian friends and neighbors to see and believe the beauty of Jesus is through prayer. Your prayers are a vital part, an absolutely critical part of ministry. And and, and part of why I think this is important for us to see is because it it actually pushes back on a couple of misconceptions, I think, that that we have about ministry. And and, and here's one of them. Some of us, I think, probably underestimate our role in ministry. And it usually goes something like this. Like, we know God is in control, right? God's gonna do what God is gonna do. So like, how much difference do my prayers make really at the end of the day? But if you notice, that is not what Paul says here. That's not how Paul thinks about prayer. He asks the Colossians to pray because he knows that God uses their prayers. He knows that there's not gonna be an open door for this message unless God is the one who opens it. And so that's one misconception, here's the other. And some of us, on the other hand, might overestimate our role in ministry. And, and the way this works is that you get to a point where you start thinking that it is all up to you. That you are the one who's gonna have to convince this person, your friend, of the truth of the gospel. And here's the thing. When you start to believe that's true, then, then there's a couple things that usually happens. That, that usually happens. One is that you're, you're a whole lot more likely to begin manipulating somebody rather than loving them. And the way that works makes a lot of sense because what you think is that I've got to do everything I possibly can to get this person to believe. And there are weird things that follow from that, right? The the, the other thing that that often happens is that you begin to live in this constant state of, of guilt and of anxiety. Again, because you feel at the end of the day that it is all on you. And what Paul says here, though, is neither of those approaches are right. What he does here is to remind us that it is God's mission. That he is the only one who can change hearts. He's the one who can open the door. And so our call is to pray, to proclaim, and then to leave the results up to him. So quick way of, by way of quick application here, pray for me, really. Pray for Andy, really. Pray for our RUF campus ministers. Pray for our ministry partners. Pray for other churches in our city. And pray for your non-Christian friends and neighbors. Pray that God, by his grace, would provide an open door for this message of the mystery of Christ. So that's the first way we show Jesus to be beautiful and believable. Here's the second. We show Jesus to be beautiful and believable by walking wisely. By walking wisely. So verse five. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders making the best use of the time. And so when Paul uses that word walk, what he's talking about is our whole way of life. He's saying, this is the way that you should live your life. So what does he mean then when he says wisdom? Well, wisdom in the Bible 
is spirit-given, and it's often really, it's also really practical. Uh, it's interesting, in, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul mentions Jesus as the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. And so part of what he's saying here is that walking in wisdom is really another way of talking about living out the new life that is yours now in Christ. So Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says discipleship, or we could substitute wisdom for that. Discipleship is learning to live the kind of life Jesus would live if he were me. Let me say that again. Discipleship is learning to live the kind of life Jesus would live if he were me. That's what wisdom is. But he says specifically here, to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. In other words, the way that you live your life in the presence of your non-Christian friends and neighbors really does matter. And so he says, make the best use of the time. He's saying, you're gonna have multiple opportunities to be with those non-Christian friends. How are you gonna spend that time? And I think maybe one of the best ways to, to think about this is something of like being intentional. And so if, uh, if learning to live the kind of life Jesus would live if he were you, if that's what wisdom is, then the question is, what would that look like? What would ministry look like in a more tangible way? Let me suggest a couple of things. One is this. It would look like living ordinary life with other people. If you think about it, that's exactly what Jesus did. And if you, you think for a moment just about the, the, the context of where ministry took place for Jesus, it was in instances like going to the well for some water or, uh, or eating meals in people's homes or it was meeting the disciples while they were out working. And, and here's why I mention this. Ministry happens in these everyday, ordinary things of life. What, what Paul has in mind here is not you having to go somewhere in order to do ministry. That, you're not adding something else to your schedule. It's instead asking this question. Where are the relationships that God has already placed in my life? Places like my work, my neighborhood, the PTA, uh, kids' sports teams, a running group, these, these ordinary, everyday sorts of places. So that's one, uh, one way that this could take shape. Here's the other thing that this could look like. I think, and this is tough, I think it would look like slowing down enough to be with people. If you think about this for a minute, have you ever noticed how often Jesus is interrupted by people? That's basically what his ministry was. Now, he had healthy boundaries. There were times where he did turn people away, so it wasn't just like a free-for-all. But it was those interruptions that over and over became the occasions for ministry. And so if you were with us earlier this spring, we did this series on the spiritual practices of the Christian life. One of the things that we talked about over and over again was the importance and the need for slowing down in order to be with Jesus, that we've got to do that. Well, I, I mentioned this today because we also need to slow down if we're ever gonna have time to be with our non-Christian friends and neighbors. One of the greatest gifts that you can give to other people is your unhurried time. One of the things that, uh, that Henry Nouwen said at the end of his life was this. He said, my whole life, I've been complaining that my work was constantly interrupted until I discovered the interruptions were my work. I promise you that people will notice if you give them your time. So when a parent on your kid's soccer team 
in casual conversation, gets to a place and starts talking about how hard their marriage is right now or how work seems impossible to them, you can stop and you can listen to them well and you can love them well. Or you get home in the evening and you see your neighbor outside and so you can walk over and talk to her, engage with her in those moments. What Paul says is that it's in those moments when you recognize the time or redeem the time, you have the opportunity to show Jesus to be beautiful and believable to your non-Christian friends and neighbors. So we show Jesus to be beautiful and believable by praying steadfastly, by walking wisely, and then thirdly and finally, it's by speaking graciously. By speaking graciously, verse six. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So I'm gonna point out two things uh, from this verse and then one assumption. Here's the first thing to see. He says that our speech should be gracious. Just to be clear, he's not talking here about being sentimental or mushy or soft on truth. What he is saying here is speaking with grace and speaking by grace. He's saying that, that, that our speech should be marked by a warmth, by a compassion, by a love, and by an honesty. And so if you think, it, it, it's really what Paul's getting at in Ephesians 4 when he calls us to speak the truth in love. And so he goes on to say here, it should be seasoned with salt. So think for a minute about what salt does. What does salt do? It makes, it makes things taste really good, right? So salted caramel, taking something that's incredible, adding salt even better, right? The other example of this are the tortilla chips at Chipotle. Salt makes those things, right? So, so good, right? So, uh, so he here's what he's saying. He's saying that our speech should be compelling towards those who are not Christians in a way that's similar to the way Jesus' speech was. Why is that important? I think it's important because there are a lot of times where we are not aware of how we are heard. And if you're here this afternoon, maybe as one who's not a Christian, you might go like, yeah. And you can say that again, Christians. And there are all kinds of ways we can apply this. I'm gonna just hit one this afternoon. And it's on social media. Your social media feeds are one of the most public avenues for your speech. So here's the question to ask yourself. Could somebody scroll your, through your timeline and come away describing you as a gracious person? Is that the first word that would come to mind when they see how I interact with people with whom I disagree? And remember, like, we're, we're not talking here about whether you have opinions on important issues. We all should have important, or opinions on important issues. The question is how are you communicating those opinions? How are you holding to those opinions? Is it a way that could be characterized as gracious and Christ-like, even in the midst of disagreement, or is it not? Secondly, uh, our lives should be question-provoking. Our lives should be question-provoking. If you look back to the end of verse six, Paul assumes here that, that outsiders are gonna be asking questions of those in the church. Do you see that? It's assumed that those questions are coming. So what kinds of questions does Paul anticipate here? He doesn't say. Here's one guess, though. I think it's the question, why? Why do you live the way you do? Why do you listen to me the way you do? Why do you have hope in the midst of really hard circumstances? Why do you forgive other people the way you do? 
Why, why do you spend money the way you do? Why do you make it such a priority to meet with your church community so consistently? Why, 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 why is that? And here's the point. Our life, our lives individually and our life together should provoke questions. This is what Peter's getting at in 1 Peter 3.15 where he says, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And that's in the context of real suffering. Why could you have hope? How could you have hope in the midst of that circumstance? That's not putting on some kind of fake hope. It's the genuine hope of the resurrection of Jesus. Christine Pohl says it this way. She says, the best testimony to the truth of the gospel is the quality of our life together. The character of our shared life as congregations, communities, and families has the power to draw people to the kingdom or to push them away. How we live together is the most persuasive sermon we'll ever get to preach. This is what Jesus has, and this is what Paul has in mind here, and this is what Jesus has in mind with his people. That we as a church would put on display his beauty. That we as a church would embody the truth of the gospel in such a way that we would bear witness to the truth of this message that we proclaim by our life together. So those are the two things. Here's the assumption that's at play in all this as well. The assumption that Paul has at work in all of these verses is that we would be so engaged with and involved in the lives of our non-Christian friends and neighbors that they would be near enough to be able to see those things and ask us those questions. Maybe say it better this way. We've welcomed them into our lives individually and we've welcomed them into our life together as a church. So I'm gonna close with this. If you flip over to the back of your bulletin, I want you to take a look at the core commitments there. One of those core commitments, second from the last, says this. This is how we think about ministry as a church that characterizes our ministry. Extending the welcome of the gospel in word and deed. So why that language? Why did we choose welcome? Well, because that language comes from the language that Paul uses in, first, or in Romans 15, 7. He says this. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. See, Jesus, in his love and grace, has welcomed you. He has called you to himself. He has shared his very life with you. He's done everything necessary to deal with your sin through his death. And he actually says that you have been united with him in his resurrection so that, so that now you actually share in that resurrection life of his now. And so the call that he gives to us as a church, and this can sort of function as a uh, commissioning for you all as a church as we move into the summer together. He calls us as a body to extend that welcome to our friends and our neighbors. And as we do that, we will put on display the beauty and the believability of our Savior Jesus. Let me pray for us that, that God would bring that about in us. Father, we do thank you for the welcome that you have extended to us, the hospitality that, that you have shown, and that you have brought us into your very life, that you've done everything necessary to make that happen by forgiving us our sin, by clothing us in Christ, by giving us new life in him, and by lavishing your love and your grace upon us. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit, by your grace at work in us, 
we would be a people who extends that welcome to the world around us, to our friends, to our neighbors who don't know you. That we might put on display the beauty and the believability of our Savior and King. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.